Oh man, we need more shucking and jiving. We need a lot more. Where are we gonna get an intro for this one? Uh, why don't we? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this is the intro. Whoa, mind blowing. Very, very meta. Honestly, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. No, that would work. Yeah. All right, welcome to episode eight of Fatal Error. I'm Chris Dzambak. Cool, and I'm Sarush Kanlu. Hi, Chris. Hi. So today, Sarush has promised to tell me about domain-driven design, which is a term that I am not at all familiar with, but I am always excited to learn new things. So, Sarush, I guess, take it away. Cool. Yeah, I guess maybe three years ago, I kind of went on a tear of like asking people to recommend me programming books and kind of reading through them, skimming through the parts that I thought were obvious, and then like kind of studying more in depth the parts that I thought were really novel and interesting. And um, I have a post on my site that's about some of the books that I found during that time that I thought were really good. So I thought uh, Martin Fowler's Refactoring was really good. I thought Sandy Metz's Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby was really good. And there was also this other book uh, called Domain-Driven Design, and I don't remember who recommended it to me. I think it was a coworker. And I kind of just got it on a lark. Uh, I was working at a company that had an unlimited budget for programming books, which was... Nice. Yeah, a really great perk. So I just, you know, sort of bought it on their dime and started reading it and found that I, like, actually liked it a lot. And um, so it kind of became, you know, uh, part of the tools in the tool chest for, like, for like how I, how I write stuff and, and how I think about how objects interact and what a model layer really is. And I feel like it's a good natural, like, follow-on to what we talked about last week, the single responsibility principle okay. stuff. So Cool. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so this book is by Eric Evans. And it basically runs through a very, I would say, it seems like a forced uh, example of like cargo shipping and whatever. And it's a kind of a dry topic, but he sort of lays out how a developer and a domain expert come together to develop what he calls a ubiquitous language to talk about this domain, which is shipping things back and forth mm. between different, like they have itineraries and cargo and, and ports and all that, all those kinds of things in the model. And he, he, he has sort of dialogues between a domain expert and the programmer, and he shows like what a bad dialogue looks like when they're not really communicating at a high level. So in those bad dialogues, the programmer is talking about like, oh, so what should I have a database row for? Or like really specific technical details, which the domain expert just doesn't know about. And then he contrasts that with sort of good dialogue where they have developed this ubiquitous language and they can communicate really efficiently together. And part of this involves the programmer learning more about the domain and a little bit about the domain expert learning about the technical limitations of the system that they're working in. So I'm already really interested and pretty invested and have already ordered this from Amazon, uh, this book. Just during the show? Well, just before we started recording. But um, that sounds really familiar to me. At my current job, working at The Times, the first thing that you do as a developer really is start to get an understanding of how the newsroom thinks about things and how the newsroom sort of models their world, their domain, right? Right. And you end up working with people from the newsroom or the product team who, uh, you know, need to have some understanding of uh, sort of tech, not not necessarily technical, like in-depth concerns, but what the iOS platform is and what conventions here are and how we sort of model things in that platform. So I, uh, yeah, I totally get where, where we're going with this, I think. Yeah. And if you really think about it, sometimes there are developers that work in like contexts of more code. So if you're writing a tool for developers, 
you might need mm -hmm. models for your like a representation of a class that's backed by a file that has the contents of that class, which is very meta and weird. But you could have like a concept <laughs> of a program and all these things um, built into your model. But for the most part, we don't work on tools for other programmers. We work on tools for other people. And so we have to understand the domains that those people mm -hmm. think and work in. And, um, and we have to like, we have to learn something about those domains. Otherwise, we can't make good technical decisions. Right. You have to yeah. understand the problem you're trying to solve, right? Exactly, exactly. I kind of want to go over like, I can't go over the whole book. Uh, but I want to go over like a couple of things that I drew from it that were uh, very revelatory for me. And hopefully that cool. in, that inspires you and, and hopefully our listeners to go check this book out and, and learn more of the in-depth stuff. So in this book, after the author introduces us to this concept of like a ubiquitous language and sort of this coupling layer between the domain expert and the programmer, he mentions... So, go ahead. Can I back up just a second? So this ubiquitous language is... Uh, a, a shared understanding, like shared terminology yeah. between these? Okay. Yeah, I think he uses that exact language of a shared understanding between the, the developer and the domain expert. Cool. So, yeah. Oh, man, maybe don't even need the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe you've got it all. You've got it all ready. Yeah. And it's also, it's funny because it's written in kind of a Java-esque world and kind of like a 90s vibe. I think it's from 2003, maybe. But it's like, you know, several, more than a decade ago. And so there's like... XML or UML markup yeah. or like, you know, with the boxes and the asterisks and the like describing the, how do you call that? I guess the, the object graph. Right. I, I learned <laughs> UML once. That seems like a somewhat useful, somewhat useful thing. I'm, I'm sorry. It took us down a, a, into the weeds Maybe here. the weeds is the new name of this podcast. There's already a good podcast uh, called The Weeds. Uh, what is it about? <laughs> uh, it's about policy. Um, so not at all programming. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a, a Vox podcast. Oh, nice. Right. So things that you took away from this book. Right. Let's back <laughs> on track out of the weeds. So one big thing I took away from this book is, for example, he talks about the distinction between entities and values. And the really simple way to think about that is that an entity is sort of more like a table in a database. Like one instance of an entity represents a row in a, in a table in a database. Okay. And then the value represents one field in that row, right? So, and I think because we think of our model layer as mostly just the like tables in a database, like each table gets a class. And from that, like that's the bulk of our model layer. And that like realization, and this was, so I read this, I think in 2014. So it was actually right before Swift came out. And so values weren't really on the on anybody's radar talking about, well, this object um, doesn't have any identity in itself. It just matters what the contents of it are, right? Like if you have a car with a specific type of leather, you might not actually care which instance of the leather you have. You just need to know that you have this kind of leather. It's more about the information about the type of it rather than the, hmm. rather than the thing itself. And then Swift comes on the scene and draws this very first class distinction between classes and structs. And it's more sort of solidified now what is the difference between what we treat as entities and what we treat as structs or values. And so what are some key differences that are outlined? Is it um, the first thing that comes to mind is whether identity is important? Yeah, so that's, that's basically the primary distinction that he draws. Okay. I'm trying to think of a better example than, than the leather in a car. The car analogies are just the worst. 
there are always kinds of animals. That's the right kinds of animals. A lot of these are enumerations, also, which are which are also valuable, and they're also sort of the the values in the same way that sort of aligned with right, values, exactly. right? So you yeah. could have a, a, a database column that's a, that's an enumeration of that you know holds one of many disjoint states, um, and he he talks about some of that stuff too. But I'm trying to think of when that would be just like let's say if you have a a product that has like a price attached, right? You right, would yeah. have just a value that represents that price. It's not important that that price has an identity on its own. It's not important that it can be shared uh, right between other instances as this one spot right, in right. memory, right? It's it's more of an inert value. It's more of a property of something than uh, something that exists on its own. That's a really great example. Uh, or another one oh, would thanks. be if you had, you're welcome, uh, if you had a, a, a something for a class and you wanted to model grades, you could model, the, model them as a letter which is fine, but then you have a bunch of invalid values that you can store and you can't sort of mm-hmm. initialize one with a with a number that turns into a letter grade. So like A, B, C, D, F. But if you represent this as a fully fledged model or as a fully fledged uh, value, then you can attach behavior to it. You can attach uh, validation to it, okay. all kinds of stuff like that. Those are some like basic examples of, of when you would use a value in your model rather than using an entity. Because again, if, if two people have an A in the class, like that a is it doesn't matter if it's the same instance it doesn't matter if it's different you can't really mutate it it just is an a right there, there's no relationship between those two a's right yeah exactly yeah. so this distinction between entity and value objects in domain driven design uh what why is this important are there any like interesting properties or ways to think about design that that fall out of this? Or is it uh, sort of the, the same ideas that we think about when, uh, when writing Swift code now? Uh, they're really similar ideas. I kind of feel like they're, they sort of run parallel in a sense because they deal with not only the representation of things in memory, but they also represent the thing sort of on disk. And some models and some apps don't need to deal with that and they just you know fetch all the information on the fly. They don't even bother caching. Uh, and so you don't really have to worry about that. But I think it's like, it's a very similar thing to classes versus structs, but it's sort of on a parallel track because it represents something that's, that might be on the disk rather than something that is in memory at all times. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I read this and, and you know, we were all still writing Objective-C and Objective-C kind of inherently has uh, this concept of identity. Everything is a fully fledged mm-hmm. object. Everything is a reference type as we, as we call it now. And uh, reading this kind of made me realize, like, wow, like, there's this whole other world of things that I can model that aren't, aren't necessarily going to have an True. ID, that aren't going to have its own identity. And I ended up writing a blog post about it called The Value of Value Objects. And that blog post came almost, like, basically entirely from, from the stuff that I learned oh, in this cool. book. And I did a little bit of extra research into other communities and how they handle it. So I linked to a post called Tiny Types. And they, they talk about that stuff in there as well. Uh, and then I followed it up with a post on uh, enumerations. And it's funny because now the, the blog post has like a caveat at the top. This is like, hey, this was written before Swift came out and you can now <laughs> add functions to enumerations. But before we had just had, basically they were just type sugar around numbers and it was a very different, it was a different time back then. Dark and ages. so this technique was actually useful. The dark ages. <laughs> And um, this this concept of like an enumeration as a value as well sort of came from what he talks about in terms of values versus entities, and that was that was definitely like a big you know when you have that epiphany and you're just like wow like yeah you just see the world in a in a new through like mm-hmm. new glasses. 
And that was this values versus entities was definitely a big part of that. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so that's one one thing that you took away from this book. Uh, is there another another thing that springs to mind you want to talk about? Or yeah, so there's also um, another thing that he he brings up, which is this concept of aggregates, and this is a little bit harder to talk about since Swift doesn't have sort of a first class construct for what this is. Uh, there's no nice parallel to something that you know we deal with on a day-to-day basis okay but you can kind of approximate it with sort of access levels like public private and internal basically the concept is when you're dealing with this model there are objects that you might be touching but you're never holding on to them directly and he actually does use a car analogy for this and so he has the concept that that there's sort of a boundary around a car uh, and while the car has maybe an array of wheels or you know however you decide to model it exactly, the users of the class car, instances of the class car, don't grab those wheels directly and like hold onto them and do stuff to them. They kind of always access it through this okay. car. And so if you were thinking about it in a Swifty sense, you might say, well, if I put my model into a into a into a module, I might make the wheel internal and then gate all of the access through the through the car to access those properties and like mutate them and change them in the way so is this sort of a um basically like composition or facade uh related concept or is it something vastly different it's not vastly different than a facade it's it's like a facade so uh, a facade is what a facade is one object that has one interface that touches many objects underneath it is that i think that's sort of right yeah yeah, it's sort of saying like, these are the objects you should touch and deal with. And while there may be other objects that you have access to, you shouldn't necessarily be instantiating those objects. Okay. You shouldn't be pulling those objects out of, like you shouldn't be pulling a wheel out of a car. For the car to be, stay a valid car, it has to keep okay. its wheels. Okay, so I'm looking at this uh, post from Martin Fowler about aggregates in domain-driven development. It seems like, and this lines up with something that you said a moment ago about sort of access control levels in Swift, but... Um, it seems like the idea of aggregates is useful for drawing boundaries around maybe implementation details of the model you're implementing. Yeah, that's okay. definitely, yeah, definitely. And sort of the outer, maybe interface that is, uh, well, that is what, that is like what uh, the rest of the application might deal with these like higher level constructs that are not implementation details. Maybe the aggregate is what you test rather than um, testing the individual parts. Is that true? Yeah. Well, so you might, within the domain module, like inside the model, you might be testing the wheels to make sure they stay internally consistent. But when you create the car, you might not be mocking out those wheels. Hmm. Okay. We're really stretching this metaphor. (laughs) Yeah, we're really pushing it. We're really pushing it. Okay. I'll, I'll put this Martin Fowler article in the show notes, though. Yeah, I think that'll be useful. I think it's a just a useful for sort of something like access control but defining and enforcing boundaries right exactly okay and yeah and as you define new types in the thing uh, maybe one way to think about it is when you let's say you in in swift you might have your car class have a nested type inside of it that's a wheel and you kind of you when you see that it's kind of a red flag like hey this wheels really needs to stay part of this car and you could Instantiate your own, but don't. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of like a nested type is is a way to think about it. Like okay. you don't want to prevent access to it, but you also don't necessarily want the user to just be able to like rip it out and like create their own and put them in and like unless that's what the model sort of needs to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So that's probably a useful thing to keep in mind. So yeah. what I've gotten so far, and again, coming into this knowing nothing about about this really. <laughs> so what we've talked about so far seem generally to be basically ways to think about modeling something that's really complex and ways to break it down into something that's maintainable and manageable for you to implement, right? Is that yeah, is, is that uh, a fair characterization of what we've talked about so far? Yeah, that is a key point of how domain-driven design works. And I think another part of it is like, if you have a concept in your app, like make the concept real by making a type around it. Uh, and of course, this was Java, so they were just calling it class all the time, but we would call it a type. Make a type around it, add the functions to it, test it so that your domain is rich enough for people to come in and understand it, for you to be able to move through it and, and say, well, this thing has a name now and I can, I can look at it, I can see what it does, I can see what its purpose is in the app, I can see where it's used in the app rather than, let's say, just passing around a dictionary or passing around a string that really is only supposed to be in three states, mm -hmm. but in fact, you're not enforcing that anywhere and you're not making that real. And I think part of it is, is make the th concepts that need to be real, real, and use those to sort of flesh out the rest of your model. Okay. Is this one of the key points in domain-driven design? Like what, um, to step back and ask a really big question, what is domain-driven design then? Is it a set of tools for, for thinking about modeling complex domains or is, is there something else here? I think it is a set of tools, but I think it's more of a, ideology feels like a heavy word but it's a framework for understanding and creating models that are really rich and really good to work with. Okay. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the time when we talk about our model, we think about it in terms of, oh, it's these tables in our database and they become these classes and they have these relationships. Or we think about it in terms of, okay, well, I have this JSON and that JSON has every object in that JSON becomes sort of a class in my domain um, but I think that a real domain is so much richer than that. You not only have your entities, which I think are these like top level JSON objects or top level tables in your database. You also have your value objects, which might come from JSON values of true and false, might come from JSON values of integers or strings. They also, um, you know, might come from fields in a database, but they're an important part of your model too. And they help you really flesh it out. Then you have other components like services. Uh, which is a little abstract of a name for my taste, but basically represents, hey, I want to access this database or this network service or whatever. Okay. And so you have all these components and all these components come together in a bigger way than just, well, my model is these 20 core data classes. Right. So, so, so far we've talked a lot about modeling entities, values, and about drawing boundaries, right, with aggregates. What, if anything, does domain-driven design have to say about uh, modeling, like, business rules, like actual logic? And, I mean, that's a very broad question, sort of intentionally, because I don't, again, don't really know what we're talking about here. Do, does it have anything to say about how to model logic, uh, how, how to model complex business rules, where this logic lives, uh, anything like that? 
So he mentions two things regarding how to wrap business logic into your domain. One of the things he talks about is constraints and policies and how to model those. And so in his cargo shipping analogy, uh, or rather example, he has like an overbooking policy. And so it's a way for a voyage to determine if it has too much cargo and voyage and cargo are, you know, capital V, capital C there. They're mm -hmm. fully reified concepts in his model. And his overbooking policy kind of just gets fired up and just tests whether the voyage has the right amount of cargo. And he also mentioned sort of the strategy pattern in terms of you can inject different policies, let's say for testing. You don't ever want one to be overbooked, so you might inject a special one for testing or okay. a special one for certain clients, stuff like that. Hmm. So yeah. And then he also talks about processes. So if you had some kind of not long-lived but also not short-lived thing where let's say you know, in one specific example, it might be a transaction in a, in a database. You have to get this object out, grab its ID, do something special to it, transform it somehow, save it as a record, update some cache count in another place, and then, you know, maybe release some lock on the database. That might be represented as a process. And that process is also like part of your domain. Okay. But so that's a part of the domain that would be, I guess, modeled in an object that does things right that maybe takes dependencies like a database and like other model objects maybe entities and then performs actions right okay but that's considered part of the models because because it represents some business rules or something yeah it does okay so this terminology is somewhat different than uh the terminology we've we're used to thinking about in our little ios corner of the world and the terminology we used in episodes one through seven in terms of what specifically? I Just in terms of, um, I mean, considering as part of the quote-unquote model to have these sort of process objects or, or maybe something we might more traditionally name like a coordinator or something, right? Right. I um, mean, we're already talking about the term model involving a little bit more than just the sort of traditional data model classes. Right. He's really specific. He calls those entities in a really like, rigid way okay. so that he doesn't get it confused with the rest of the model. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, in as much as, especially if you have a core data heavy app, all of your models, maybe you like create some special version of your own object, but probably for the most part, you're transacting with NS managed object subclasses. And those, those like they're going to do the database stuff. Like they're going to, they have knowledge of how the database works. They are passed into to other things. And, and in that way, I think they're part of the model as well okay this makes some sense i can see that and this does sort of line up with uh I'll, I'll let you get back to your thought in a moment this sort of lines up with a question i remember you asking i think in the view models episode or something shortly thereafter where you were thinking about reconsidering what exactly the term model means in, right. in this context yeah that okay. was episode three view models again but yeah uh oh, if that's right. <laughs> Yeah, we had to we had to do a follow up because I had too many questions. But yeah, I definitely think that that's part of it, right? In as much as a view controller binds a model to a view, and a view is managing what's on display and like how we interact with that thing that's on display, the model then is left with basically all of our business logic. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think it's basically right. Would you? I mean, I I don't really like the dis, the, the the sharp distinction between model view and controller, but would you put? the business logic in something that you would that we would traditionally call a controller 
I mean, I think something that we've been tending toward with view models, with thinking about the single responsibility pattern with coordinators, is starting to tease apart the parts of the application that are more business logic oriented, that are more model oriented, and the parts of the application that are more maybe iOS housekeeping oriented, and, right. and the parts that are actually like strictly view layer, right? Right. And we can maybe quibble about with th what things fit in model, view controller, view model, maybe view models are a little bit somewhere between controller and model. After all, that's sort of where they go in the di in a diagram. If you replace the like controller with a view model, right? That's right. sort of mediates the view. Right. It, it knows some, I don't know if it would be a considered a view specific thing, but it knows like, hey, should this button be visible? And that's kind of like knowing about the view, but in um, some sense, the button could be on maybe. any platform, you know? Yeah. Weeds, weeds. Weeds. <laughs> Love the weeds. Very happy in the weeds. I mean, I think it is useful for us to take a step back from thinking about just talking about this in the abstract and think, okay, how does this apply to what we've talked about so far in, right. in this season and in what we do in our day-to-day -day job? Yeah. And I think it's like the lessons that he gives are, are very couched in like, here's how you create a model. But I think that they can be applied more broadly in the same way that the single responsibility principle can. Like mm -hmm. if you need an enumeration that represents these things that can only have uh, these consistent states and are not allowed to be in any other state than those, then like create that enumeration, even if it's not in your model yeah. specifically. Like the lessons of like identity, is identity important versus is identity not important are broader than just you know using this for your model. But a model is a good place right. to start with that stuff. Or, I mean, if you if you introduce an enumeration for something like this, it, I mean, whether you call it part of your model or not is uh, almost inconsequential, right? It's, you, right. you are modeling something there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Even if you're trying to represent, you know, here's the three kinds of ways you can auth to our right. API, you're right. modeling something, Yeah. even if it's not your the domain of your app itself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Is there any other big lesson that you took away from this or interesting way to think about something? Yeah, and this is sort of one of the broader things that I picked up from the book, not necessarily something that he talks about specifically. But one of the things that I took away from this was that, and we sort of touched on this in the Singleton episode, but basically like if you have a concept in your app that needs to be modeled but doesn't like feel like a traditional model, Mm -hmm. Go ahead and make it anyway and see what behavior and stuff you could attach to it, right? So if you had, uh, I think we talked about like a, the concept of uh, like a cart or, a, uh, or like a current cart. You have a cart model for sure, which has like, you know, an array of items that are in the cart. Right. A like a subtotal, whatever else. But the current cart is really a different concept than any cart. Right. The current cart is is something that, if you you could name it something different and just call it a view model, I think in some worlds, but it might have a method like, hey, add this to the to the cart, uh, add this item to the yeah. cart. But well, I think the current cart would be something that you call a view model. But right, there's a difference between a cart in general and the current cart, and the those rules or the fact that there is a current cart that you're adding things to that that's part of your business rules, right? That's part yeah, of the business logic. So. Right, and while you might be tempted to model the current cart with any like cart 
object, the one that's database backed or core data backed or whatever. There are really different policies and different restrictions and different functions that need to be available on each. One might need to be able to check certain preconditions before adding to like, so the current cart would have a cart model, right? I need to check certain conditions before mm -hmm. it adds, like, are you logged in? Like, can you do this thing? Do you have the permission to do this thing? Um, whereas the cart itself might have preconditions on it that are like, oh, can this cart be this big? Or like how, how many items can be in a cart at a given time? Right. Uh, especially if you're starting out like that might be a nice piece of business logic that, that you need. And so that goes on any cart, uh, but there are other preconditions that might go on the, specifically the current cart. Sure. Yeah. 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 So those are the, the things that I kind of drew from this more generally is like, if you have a concept that needs to be reified, if you have a concept that needs to be formalized into a type, you got to, you got to do it. And then, then it becomes more clear what functions need to go on it, what behavior, what data needs to go on it. And the names of those objects yield so much more clarity, especially to someone coming in that's new, yeah. especially to yourself in six or six months or a year. It's super important. Cool, cool. I will look forward to getting this book from, from Amazon and really digging in. But I think already we've looked at some really useful things to think about that line up with a lot of the things that we've talked about already in this season, especially around the single responsibility principle. Uh, we've touched on singletons. We've touched on the facade pattern. We've touched on some kind of similar uh, or sort of related concepts. And so... Uh, I feel like some of the stuff that we talked about tonight is just more more useful tools for thinking about how to how to think about modeling the domain in which you're programming, right? Which is a, right. which is a hard thing, and which which isn't necessarily a given. Like if you graduate with a computer science degree, you you know about computer science, but to be really, really, really useful as a programmer, you have to understand both computer science and the domain that you're working in, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, any tools that we can find to help with that are are definitely really valuable. Yeah, this book is, is really good at like taking all the things that we think about and really formalizing them, giving them names cool. and giving you a way to talk about it and think about it. And I think it's an awesome book. Awesome. Sweet. I don't think I have anything else to add today. Cool. Yeah, there's a lot more in this book. I recommend our listeners go out and check it out. Uh, it's a great book. Cool. And we've added a lot of uh, useful links on subjects that we touched on to the show notes as well. Cool. All right. Well, it was great talking to you again, Chris. Yeah, as always, great to talk to you. And uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you in two weeks.